0: Thank you. Well, hello again, everybody. Welcome to the now second episode of the Book Exchange Podcast. Uh, it, we the first the experiment of the first episode seems to have been successful enough that we now have a second, so that's a good sign. My name is John Lovell. I am the co-host of this podcast. And with me is
1: Hey, this is Jude Lovell. Welcome everybody to episode two of the Book Exchange podcast. It's great to be back again. Now, just to recall really quickly, last week in our inaugural episode, we uh, entitled it The Books That Made Us Fiction. So this is now episode two, and it's The Books That Made Us Nonfiction. So we're going to dive into nonfiction titles. Um, So very glad to be here, and uh, just to go very quickly through the uh the layout the format today we're going to touch very briefly on what we're reading now which is part of the format we're trying to establish and then we're going to dive right into the meat of the episode john um with a review of our top 3 nonfiction books that made us and discuss those and then at the end very briefly we'll talk about what's coming up next how's that sound to you
0: Uh, that's great yep good rundown and uh, I think we had a couple administrative points we wanted to make first Uh, is that right
1: yeah that's right so just really quickly I'm gonna uh, throw out a few administrative notes and to start it off we just have thank yous that we'd like to cover first and foremost thank you so much to everybody who listened to the first episode of the Book Exchange podcast the inaugural episode
0: yes Uh, we
1: we really appreciate that you all tuned in uh, those who did And it means a lot to us to have you listening. So thank you very much, everybody for that. Amen. And secondly, if you liked the uh, logo or the image that was created for the book exchange podcast, which was a picture of myself and John, if you didn't figure that out from early in our lives, I've got two people to thank for that. And they happen to be my nephews, John's uh, two of John's sons. So, Caleb, John's oldest son, and his third son named Sam, uh, thank you guys so much for creating our logo image with that picture. Um, I think it's fantastic, and uh, you guys did a great job on that. And I'll just say really quickly, um, I I love that image, John, because it is an authentic image of the two of us when we were about, I'd say about three or four when we were living in Chicago as very young children, and it kind of proves what we're sort of hanging our uh, authenticity on or our credibility on, which is that the conversation has been going on for a very long time. And that picture proves it. Yeah. So they that, did a great job. Yeah.
0: If I could just throw in, like, I, I think it's been, that's actually been going on since before we could read. I mean, if you look at the <laughs> picture closely, I think we're just pointing to pictures with each other. So it's, it's really something, but yeah, I think that picture goes back to, I would say 1973 or 74. So, wow, we're old. First of all. But uh, yeah, (laughs) thanks for pointing that out. A shout out to my two boys there. Uh, Really appreciate the work they did. And it just, you know, they made it kind of personal and fun. So that's enough of that.
1: Yeah, very talented and creative young men. um, And all John's children are. So I'm going to go, I'm going to, you're welcome. I'm going to run quickly through a couple other administrative things. And then I'm just going to dive right in, John. So be ready. ready. Um, now, the Book Exchange podcast, folks, is live, and it's just in, in just about everywhere that you can find podcasts. It's available, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Breaker Pod, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't even know what half of those things are, but um, <laughs> however, however you are accessing our podcast. Um, do us a favor, and if it, if it allows you the chance to do it, please like or follow us on those pages. And, you know, just the reason why we're asking that is because it will help us. We think it will help us to gain listeners, and it also helps to give us a little bit of credibility, which perhaps we need to earn. So we appreciate it if all the listeners would do that. And uh, just to remind people, our goal going forward, did you want to say something, John?
0: Yeah. No, no, I'm just just, uh, emphasizing what you said. You said it well.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, Our goal going forward is to keep each episode to about an hour. We'll see how we do today. That's one of our objectives for today. So we're going to try to do that. And I just want to, as a reminder, um, most of our shows, we've decided, are are not going to be quite as Jude and John-centric as these first two are. our, our intention is, you know, to focus mainly on specific books or different themes or writers, but the first two episodes we decided on uh, specifically to help you all get to know us, um, you know, as podcasters, and so that's the, why they were designed the way they are. But we're going to try to focus uh, on, you know, topics that aren't quite as centric on Jude and John Lovell per se. And another way to say that would be. more so than than being focused on Jude and John Lovell, even though we want to take advantage of our twin brotherliness and our interests, this podcast's primary focus is on the books and the writers themselves. So I just wanted to make a note of that. And uh, just in general, we will continue to try to improve as we go and make things better. We're trying to do that this week, and we're going to continue to work on it, so we ask for your patience. And lastly... If you are interested in leaving some feedback or letting us know something about whether you like what you hear, don't like what you hear, or think we can improve, there is a way to do that. Uh, If you go to anchor.fm forward slash book dash exchange, I'll say that again, anchor.fm forward slash book dash or hyphen exchange, X-C-H-A-N-D. GE, you can, there's a, a little button there where you can leave us a voicemail and we will hear it and we will try to incorporate your feedback into future podcasts. Uh, so that's the administrative notes. John, do you have anything you want to say?
0: No, I think you covered everything that we wanted to cover and uh, and we're trying to create a trimmer show here. So let's dive right in.
1: All right. Awesome. So these are the books that made us nonfiction and what we're talking about here is books that are nonfiction books, which is a very broad category, as you know, that help to make us into the readers we are, or in some cases, the writers we are, or even in some cases, the people we are, or maybe all the above. So we both prepared lists of three books each. And John, I'm going to throw the ball over to you and have you touch on your first book.
0: All right. Well, thanks for the setup there. And again, just as we get started here and I take a look at my notes a little bit, I just want to say thank you for everybody who did tune in, listen to the inaugural episode and meant a lot to us that you did that. I know we had listeners from, you know, the Midwestern area, uh, Indiana, Ohio, had, had a couple in Florida, had some in New Jersey and up and down the East Coast. And that was really gratifying for us. So thank you. So my first, my first uh, nonfiction choice in, uh, of, of a book that had a major influence on me and just kind of like, in this case, literally really like kind of opened up the uh, horizon of my mind and, and my brain in, in, in quite an interesting and significant way. And so my first choice is a book called The Creators by Daniel J. Boorstin. Uh Some of you may recognize that title, uh, others may not. Daniel J. Borston uh, is an American historian. I believe he's passed away now. Um, I'm almost confident of that. And, uh, but he was, uh, an eminent historian, uh, for most of his career, he wrote, wrote a ton of books. He was also a librarian of Congress. So that's a, you know, it's a, that's a, you know, he's our kind of guy. He was, a he led a life just immersed in books and reading and learning. And, um, and he, as I said, he wrote many, many books, but really what I consider and many consider to be sort of his magnum opus is he wrote uh, a trilogy of books that, you know, uh, basically was a chronicle of man, of mankind's intellectual and creative achievements. I mean, talk about a broad category, uh, but that's what he did. And, you know, the first two, I remember coming out in the 90s. Um, or, you know, the first one may have been late eighties, but it's somewhere around 1990, I'll say. And then a third volume appeared. I believe it was his last book, uh, at least published when he was alive, but a third volume appeared significantly later, but those three books are called the discoverers, the creators and the seekers. And they cover, as I said, you know, man's intellectual and creative achievements, Literally from the dawn of time until the 20th century. And so the Discoverers is about, uh, you know, man's achievements as discoverers. So we're talking about areas like science and technology and economics, even and politics and things like that. Whereas the Creators focused more, you know, the subtitle of the book, The Creators, is a history of heroes of the imagination. So in The Creators, he takes on basically uh, it's it's nothing less than a history of man as artist so that can go back to literally to the cave walls or uh, you know uh, you know the the desert floor or all the way to you know uh 20th century rock and roll and and digital art you know um so that's what the creators is and then the seekers is a book more about uh mankind as a spiritual seeker so that's it deals more with philosophy and spirituality and theology and religion so I've read all three. The one by far, I love all three. I love all three. So I could really kind of take the entire trilogy as sort of my choice here. But I'm going to focus on the creators because it, I just read it at the right time. I read it in my early 20s, um, and it and it as I said before, you know, this is a book that covers everything. It begins with with uh, you know well known myths and creation stories from the world's religions. And there's a fascinating survey in the opening section of the book about that is how basically how mankind kind of uh you know struggled to depict who we are and where we come from, and all the different you know common threads and also differences between various creation myths, myths, and narratives from all over the planet so if if that's not fascinating enough, and he goes from there and he just literally goes through the history. Of uh, man's artistic achievements, and I'm talking about you know everything from the wit- written word, poetry, epic poetry, you know from the Greeks, novels, essays, short stories, memoirs. But it goes much further than that. It gets into visual art and painting, music, architecture, uh, even even landscape art and horticulture is covered. I mean, this is a there's a fascinating chapter on the way uh, Japanese culture throughout the, throughout the centuries work, work with wood. So, I mean, this is an exhaustive book covers almost every type of art you can possibly imagine. But for me, the reason it's so, uh, so essential is that it it really, it, it got me interested. Almost a single book got me interested in so many other artists that I really didn't know anything about, you know, artists that we hear the name, I'll give you an example, Montaigne from France, Most, Uh if if you're, if you've been through, you know, high school or college, you you might recognize that name. You might even know that he's a famous essayist, but you know, Borson has an entire chapter on why his essays were so fundamental and how they changed the way people think and write. And I, you know, before I read that chapter, I didn't really know anything about him other than his name after I wanted to pick up the book and read it. So I think, you know, Given that that's what this podcast is about, you know, helping people to discover uh, new new voices to read and um, maybe new pathways for their own reading, you know, this book was just fundamental. And I, I'm going to read a quote from the from the front piece of it that I thought, you know, really just speaks to a little bit to what we're trying to do here too. You know, on the and as you open the book, the first page there's two quotes. One, but one is from Pablo Picasso, to, and it says this. To me, there is no past or future in art. If a work of art cannot live always in the present, it must not be considered at all. The art of the Greeks, of the Egyptians, of the great painters who lived in other times is not an art of the past. Perhaps it is more alive today than it ever was. And to me, first of all, first of all, Jude, I mean, to me, that's that's a quote that kind of speaks to the essence of, at least in part, of what we're trying to do with this podcast, because we aim to read broadly. I said that before, but you know, all periods of time, you know, it's all, it's all part of the mix in the conversation. Um, so I thought that, I thought that would be great to read, but you know, I'll wrap it up, but I, I'm due for a reread on this. I only read it once, but it, it literally, it got me interested in so many different artists that, you know, uh, I, I may not have ever, it, it, among others, it's the first book that really opened my eyes to Herman Melville, got me reading him. We talked about him last, you know, Moby Dick, there's a whole chapter. Uh-huh. There are so many. This book is a treasure trove and it really just had an immense impact on me. I think you can hear that just from my description. And so uh, I could go on and on about it, but that's, that's my first choice.
1: Well, uh, what a great, uh, what a great choice that is, John. That's a, that's such a John F. level <laughs> choice. If you, if you know, John, uh, but really fantastic choice. Like, and, and I remember you passed that book on to me. Um, and I think I, i can't remember if i actually read it or not to be honest i think i did i think i did read it i didn't read all three volumes and then um and borston i remember you being very enthusiastic about boards in our 20s and then you you get you actually gave me that trilogy he wrote about the, the united states of america called the americans mm-hmm. which is all about our country so i just throw in a reference to that um incredible historian but yeah you talk about a a great choice for you and just like as far as opening the door to uh, different pathways that you would wander down so many of those in your reading and in your thought process. Uh, that's, that's a great one. So Dang. really cool. So uh, my first book, and I, I'll just dive in here, is um, actually connects us back to the fiction podcast in our inaugural episode. Um, I chose a book that's called Mystery and Manners. <laughs> And it was written It's written by Flannery O'Connor. So we talked about Flannery O'Connor, the um, Catholic writer from Georgia in our first podcast who's famous for two novels and her for, you know, very sharp, witty and funny, uh, also dark and religious short stories. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned last week, she she didn't live that long. She died at thirty nine with complications from lupus. And uh, we talked a little bit about what what's so brilliant about her fiction, but her, she does have one book that was p- published posthumously of prose writing essays, essentially. Um, and it's this book, it's called Mystery and Manners. And I really love the subtitle of this book. It's uh, the subtitle is just Occasional Prose. And in this, in this book, it really works on both levels. So she wrote prose occasionally because she was primarily a fiction writer, and she wrote prose four occasions. So she was invited to give this speeches at schools a lot in her lifetime or at different conferences or, you know, for this or that, and this collects a lot of those writings. Um, they were gathered by a couple named Robert and Sally Fitzgerald who were very close friends of Flannery O'Connor during her lifetime, and they had the job of kind of sifting through a lot of uh, unpublished nonfiction material after her death, and they did an incredible job of culling it into this one volume.
0: Hey, can I interrupt, so, you? Can I interrupt you for one second? I apologize. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I just want to, do you remember, I have to throw in while, while you're starting to talk about this, do you remember that um, several years back I met a librarian here in my local town and uh, she was an elderly lady and we got into a conversation about books and eventually it she was also a member of my church. It wound around to the fact that she studied English in college and a college in the South. But long story short, she was telling me how she was forced to attend a lecture. Um, And the lecture turned out to be one given by Flannery O'Connor because she was describing her as a famous Southern writer. And she came out on the stage with crutches and we kind of of put together. (laughs) She, she said at the time I didn't want to go and I wasn't very into it, but I wish I had paid more attention now. So somebody that I knew in my town very likely heard one of the talks that's collected in that book, which is incredible.
1: Yeah, that's extraordinary. That would have really been amazing to, uh, (laughs) to be present for. That's a great story.
0: Yeah. Um, keep going.
1: Anyway, so this book, um, I was trying to remember exactly when I read it first and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've been a a fan of Flannery O'Connor since I was in my twenties and I had read some of her stuff, um, in my 20s, before I went to graduate school. I went to graduate school in my late 20s. But I know I was assigned to read Mystery and Manners when I was at graduate school in New York City. So this would have been around 1998, 1999. I can't remember if it was my first time reading the book or not. I've read it like two or three times. But um, I remember being really stunned by the book at the time and I've read it a few times since then. And you know. What's a, we talked about Flannery O'Connor and, uh, and her wit, and she had like this sort of preternatural talent and intelligence, like a sense of herself and the world, where she fit into the world as she understood it from a theological and existential perspective. And she, she had this tremendous assurance of what her job was as a fiction writer. And that's what comes through all these pieces. Um, she knows exactly what she's doing, or she knew exactly what she was doing when she did her job as a writer and the way it fit into her entire worldview. And that comes out again and again in these pieces. Now, the book is organized. um, I'm going to read a little passage as well just to give you an example of her incredible intelligence and perception. But I should just mention that the book is organized in a really interesting way, too. It sort of starts... Kind of slowly, there's a famous essay she wrote about the farm she lived on and the peacocks that lived there um, called The King of the Birds. Mm-hmm. And then it proceeds to some essays about her just being from the South and living and working into the South, in the South. And then it goes from there into a couple sections about, like, the function of fiction and short stories. There's a famous one called The Nature and Aim of Fiction. And uh, another one is called Total Effect in the Eighth Grade. So it's talking about kind of like the way fiction is taught and understood in our education system. And then it gets to this Whopper section, it's not a very long book, with four essays in a row concerned with basically the intersection between being a creative person or a fiction writer or a writer, and being a Roman Catholic, which is of particular interest to me. There's four essays, one's called The Church and The Fiction Writer, then novelist and believer, Catholic novelists and their readers, and then the Catholic novelists in the Protestant South. And then there's a few um, appendices. And each one of these essays is just remarkably um, um, intellectual and articulate. And it just demonstrates this incredible um, ability she had to understand kind of who she was and what she was doing here. And to wrap up my comments on this, I'm just going to read a very small quote from the essay called Novelist and Believer. So Flannery O'Connor wrote, the novelist tries to give you, within the form of the book, a total experience of human nature at any time. For this reason, the greatest dramas naturally involve the salvation or loss of the soul. Where there is no belief in the soul, there's very little drama the Christian novelist is distinguished from his pagan colleagues by recognizing sin as sin. According to his heritage, he sees it not as sickness or an accident of environment, but as a responsible choice of offense against God, which involves his eternal future. Either one is serious about salvation or one is not.
0: Hmm. And
1: that's just an example of the wit and the, uh, intelligence that is uh rife in this entire volume so that really has made a huge impact on me over to you
0: yeah wow yeah that's such a great book I, I actually recently reread it and i am not an active writer of fiction um but it's just so full of insights that could speak it obviously speak to someone who is a writer and a believer um, but so much beyond that. So uh, it's, an, it's an incredible book. It's a great selection you just read there, and it's a nice segue into my next choice too, because it's it's similar in that it, this is a book that is written primarily to another writer, but it has it's it's it, the truths and insights contained in it. I think you know go much farther beyond that. So my second choice. Ooh is a very well-known book. It's a small book. It's only a hundred pages. So I'll, I'll note that my last book was 800 something pages. This one's only a hundred, a hundred pages. So it's a buck long. Um, it's, it's by the German poet, Reiner Maria Rilke, and it's called letters to a young poet. It's a very famous slim book of let, literally letters that, um, Rilke wrote to uh, a student of his who's unnamed in the book. Um, and kind of just advising him. So it's a little bit like, dude, you mentioned that you were in your uh, graduate school day, you, you were writing and learning under the tutelage of Stephen Wright. Well, yeah, you know, it'd be like, that might be a whole different book of letters from <laughs> <laughs> from Stephen Wright to you. But uh, that's the relationship here. And of course, uh, Rilke was um, alive in the 19th century, I, I think. Uh, for most of his life. I could be wrong on that. I should probably do a little more homework. But this book, number one, it has a personal connection for me. The first person to rec and and for you in a way, first person to recommend this book to me was our, our beloved dad, you know, God Rest His Soul. Uh, he first told me about it. My dad and I had a mutual interest in poetry. And we both, we had that in common, the interest, and we also, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, had unfortunately in, in my dad's case had had in common that we dabbled in it and tried it ourselves. Um, as you know, he left behind a lot of different poems that he was writing or working on. And, and if nothing else, they're very insightful, you know, into the man who, that he is and who he was. Cause he wrote a bunch about his, you know, being a young kid and things. So I've tried my hand on it as well. So that was part of the initial, uh, you know, attraction for me, but the edition I'm, I have, which I have in front of me, what the translator uh, was Stephen Mitchell, who's a very prominent translator of many works, um, everything from the Bhagavad Gita to uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And he's the uh, translator of this book of poet of letters from the German. And he writes a great introduction to the book. In that introduction, he talks about how this particular small book was his, his introduction to the work of Rilke. And he says and I'm quoting here, uh, Mitchell writes that he regarded Rilke as a spiritual teacher and mentor before ever reading a word of his poetry. And I just, I I quote that because that's exactly what happened. That was exactly my experience too. I'd never read his poetry, which is famously difficult. I have since, and it is difficult, although very rich, uh, if you can kind of slog your way through it. Um, But uh, my first exposure to him was this small book of of letters and it they're very short but he's he's basically the letters you know as i said he's advising a student who wrote him and wanted to have him read some of his work and get his advice not just about writing but about being an artist so rilke just dives in and, and you know as i think he it seems like he was that kind of guy with everything he did but three themes emerge in, in the letters that he writes even though they're so short they're they're incredibly rich and those three themes are And they all relate to being an artist, but they have resonances outside of being an artist, I think. But those three are, number one, the relationship of creating art to solitude and the importance of finding places of solitude in your life, especially if you're going to be a creator. So that's number one. Number two, the second theme is the nature of human love and how it influences, you know, creativity. And the third is just kind of the nature of creativity itself. So that's what the book ends up being about. And, and, you know, there's a reason that why it's become kind of a, really a guidebook and and, and almost the, the kind of book like that people give to people who are graduating from college or things like that. Um, because it just, within these short letters, he just, he he just opens his heart and his mind and he just expounds on, you know, what it means to, you wrangle with the world that you live in and try to make something of it. So you can relate to this as a writer. I know my son, if he, my oldest son, if he hears this, he's a songwriter and he dabbles in poetry himself. So you have all this raw material around you and Rilke just encourages everybody to, you know, make the most of it and kind of open your eyes spiritually and physically and take in what's around you. Don't go, you know, young people tend to look at the horizon and you know shoot for these big grandiose themes when they miss all this incredible beauty and mystery that's right in front of them. And that's kind of the theme of these books. So, you know, anybody who reads these letters, I think would get a lot out of them for those reasons. But as a young person, you know, I read this in probably my mid twenties. It's just, I mean, I could open any letter and just kind of read one or two lines from it. And, and you would see kind of the the richness of it. It's just kind of an all world book in that regard. But just to kind of sum up what I was just talking about, there's this, I'll read a short passage that's very well known, but it kind of, I think it kind of captures what, what Rilke was trying to get at here. He says, so rescue yourself from these general themes and write about what your everyday life offers you. Describe your sorrows and desires, the thoughts that pass through your mind and your belief in some kind of beauty Describe all of these with heartfelt, silent, humble sincerity. And when you express yourself, use the things around you, the images from your dreams and the objects that you remember. If your everyday life seems poor, don't blame it. Blame yourself. Admit to yourself that you are not enough of a poet to call forth its riches, because for the creator, there is no poverty and no poor in different place. So I, 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 that just really spoke to me. It speaks to me as a human being. It speaks to me as someone who's ever tried yeah. to write something. But it, I, I just love the emphasis on, and you read that, and it sounds kind of harsh, maybe out of context, but in the, in the context of the letters, the letters are very encouraging. So he's saying, admit that you don't have the vision yet to see all the, ma- all the mystery, all the truth and beauty that's happening around you, um, but keep striving for it. And, I, and that's a message that I've always carried with me from this book. So no matter what it is I do, I think in some small way, I'm going to be shooting for that. And Rilke was the one who kind of showed me where that bar is and uh, sort of opened my eyes to what's possible in creative expression uh, if you really give it your full heart and soul. So that's that book. Kicking it back over yeah, to you. Yeah, what
1: a, another great choice, John. Um, I read... So I, you know, it was just really interesting to listen to you talk about it. Um, I read that book. I think, I think you gave it to me. I, I, I'm, I'm not positive, but yeah, I think you might have given it to me. I think you found it used in, in, in the hardcover edition and gave it to me. I yeah, I might did. be wrong about that, but I, I read it at least once. And I've come back to it a lot over the years. I remember very distinctly, you're going to remember this, John, one of the letters. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it here, but which really spoke to me because it, it's great for somebody who aspires to do, you know, creative writing or anything creative. And I've often thought about it with a link to your son, Caleb. Um, but I remember distinctly reading the one letter, uh, John, that you'll recognize, which basically says this, you know, ask yourself if you can do this create, creative, and en- if you can live and not do this creative endeavor that you're into. You know, so in my case, it would be ask yourself if you can continue to live yeah. And, that, you know, not do the, you know, be a rival. And um, for me, like, even though I have no, you know, fame or I'm not really a published writer and stuff, the answer was no, you know. And so it, it was a, something that was mm-hmm. very clarifying for me. You know, it sort of gave me a little sense of, well, I'm not insane. At least I, you know, I, I'm doing what I believe I should be doing because I can answer that question with honesty. And uh, another quick point, and I, I'm glad you pointed this out to uh, our listeners, because like that, that the book is not discouraging. That's very much encouraging, but it's also, it has the virtue of being direct. And I think that's one thing that comes up very clearly yes. in all this. It's a very short book. It's simple, but it doesn't, as anybody who's a parent or a mentor or has ever tried to give anyone advice about anything is, you know, you're not doing anybody any favors if you kind of, if you kind of you know, wishy-wash around the hard stuff, you know. And this book is a cr- crystal clear yep. example of, you know, the virtue of just uh, being direct. So that's a great one.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing book. I I really, anybody can get a, a heck of a lot out of it. And again, it's only 100 pages. So if you're looking for something substantial uh, about creativity, you could do a lot worse. Yeah,
1: that's a really good one. Uh, so my second book, I'm actually going to try to cover this maybe even a little quicker. And that's a little selfish because I want to save myself some room to talk about my third book because I'm really excited about it. <laughs> but also, um, I think there's a couple of cool. reasons to be quick about this one. Um, you know, and I, I'm going to tread a little bit lightly here, not because of any shame or, you know, unwillingness on my part. But, you know, this my next book is a religious book. And not maybe not everybody listening to this is going to be, you know, Really into the you know the subject matter, and that's fine. But um, when we talk about the books that kind of helped form us into who we are, this book, I realized when I was you know sort of preparing for this that this book really deserved to be on the list. And it's another book I was gifted by my co-hosts. So I got this from uh, John um, about fifteen oh, nice. or sixteen years ago. The book is called Holy Thursday. With a subtitle and an intimate an intimate remembrance. And it was written by a French novelist uh, named Francois Mauriac. Now he was born in the late 18th, 19th century, and he lived until the year we were born, which is 1970. Um, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in the 1950s. But he's pretty obscure today. Like not a lot of people I know have heard of him. Francois Moriac, although Flannery O'Connor was a big fan. So he was a French... Yeah. There you go. So he was a French novelist and a Catholic. And he uh, had written written some fairly, in Catholic circles, well-known novels still. One's called, I think it's called Not of Vipers. And then there's another one that's called Therese, which is a famous character study by a French uh, Catholic woman. Anyway, uh, the book Holy Thursday is basically a very short, it's another short book, um, nonfiction narrative about the Eucharist, which is central to the Catholic faith. When I speak of the Eucharist, I'm talking about the consecrated uh, wafer or bread that's um, transformed according to Catholic belief from being a wafer or being just bread into the, the body of Jesus Christ uh, during the, uh, the transubstantiation that occurs during the Catholic Mass. This is a book that's about a reflection on the Eucharist, what it is and what it means. And I realized, you know, it. I was sort of surprised by coming to the understanding that this book needed to be on my list of top three nonfiction books. But the reason why that's the case without getting too far into the doctrinal aspects of this is because, you know, It's a book that's really it also has a virtue of directness, but it's kind of a a beautiful and short and moving meditation basically on what the Eucharist is and how it was established by Jesus Christ, according to our belief and what it means and the frame of mind that it put Francois Moriach in to contemplate it and consider its import in his life. And that's all it is. It's just got uh, several short chapters and it's reflective on you know what the Eucharist is and, and the, the 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 import that it has in his life not only just as a person or as a spiritual being but all as a also as a writer and creator and man and it's just a it's a very beautiful and beautifully written book and I think one of I think the thing that really makes it kind of a that really makes it stand out to me as one of a, the seminal works of nonfiction in my world is not only, you know, related to my personal beliefs and view of the Eucharist and, and how important it is for me, but it's also the great sense of mystery and humility that this writer from France had in approaching the subject. And so throughout the book, he talks about it with great reverence, but also with great, you know. a a greatly intellectual and uh, sharpness and in an articulate manner. And he puts himself kind of before this subject matter in a very humble way. And for me, that's not only that was not only impressive just from a spiritual point of view and from the point of view of the ideas and the beliefs that make me into the person I am. But also, as I come at everything also from a literary and a writing point of view and the point of view of craft, I think he really tried to put himself and his ego aside and just to focus on what he was thinking about and contemplating about. And he tried to invoke from himself the best writing and uh, prose that was worthwhile of the subject that he was writing about. And I find it to be a very moving book. And it's a book that really makes me consider, again, a question that I have to say is at the very center of my own personal existence. You know, if, you, if you're if you somebody who goes to Catholic Mass on a regular basis, weekly, you come for the table uh, where the Eucharist is being transformed week in and week out, and it's very difficult not to say to yourself at certain times, maybe all the time, maybe every week, what is this? What am I doing? What is this all about? And Holy Thursday is yeah. a book that Attempts to put that into language that is easy to understand, but also conveys the sense of awe and majesty and the incredible thing that this is um, for us to be able to receive the actual body of Jesus Christ. So I really love the book, and it's been very meaningful for me, and that's why I came on my list. Don, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, uh, well, you can hear you know, why that book is so important to you. And I can certainly understand uh, because it it seems, you know, that it was inspiring to you on, on several levels, you know, from a writing perspective, just as you said, to write so clearly and beautifully and briefly about something so deep and mysterious, that's number one. But then to kind of, you know, examine that relationship between, and he's coming from the point of view as a writer. So as you said, what does this mean? What does this mean to me? What, in fact, what's the relationship between this and what I try to do as a writer, is there one? And do, you know, can I live without this uh, this spiritual food, both as a human being and a man and as a writer and artist? You know, he's, he's I've read the book, too. He's exploring all of that. Um, and also, you touched on this, and this is not a show about Catholic theology, although it's going to come up from time to time because it's part of who we are, and we're not going to shy away from that, as you said. Um, But that is not the central focus of this show. But um, if you're a Catholic living in this time, you know, there's a lot uh, you could, that has gone awry and, and many, many catastrophic mistakes have been made in the church. So even more so you go to mass, if you, if you still go to mass and go every week, you're asking yourself, you know, while some parts of the building are falling down all around you, you're asking yourself, why am I doing this? Well, and you invariably get to the, to the altar, to the table that we gather around every week. And, you know, if, if you're either, you know, that is what, what the catechism called the source and summit of our entire faith. And if it, if it is, you know, if that's what keeps drawing you, then that's, that's why, why you keep going. And, um, everything else sort of pales in comparison to that, but, You know, so in this day and age, for to read a book where he's, uh, you know, just focused only on that, maybe for some people, a great reminder, uh, you know, of what what it is about the Catholic faith that has made it endure for over 2,000 years and, and been so important to billions all around the planet. So, anyway, that's a whole other discussion. It's a great choice. You can definitely hear the passion, uh, in your voice as you describe it. So my, we're about 40 minutes in, so we're doing pretty well. Uh, my my third choice and my final choice is by far the most recent pick on my list, which is sort of funny because you think this is a list of, you know, the books that made us. And this is a book I first read, oh, probably five years ago, five, six years ago. So in some ways it hasn't had a ton of time to quote unquote make me, but I include it because it, it's had a po- very powerful influence on me in the short time that I've been aware of it. Take a pause for a sip of water here. There's a lot of talking. Uh, uh, so, and the book is called My Bright Abyss, Meditation of a Modern Believer. And it's by a man named Christian Wyman. Christian Wyman is an American poet. He's around the same age that we are. So, it's kind of a peer of ours. And he um, is Pretty well known in poetry circles, but as you know, those are pretty pretty small circles. You know, not not a whole lot of people dwelling in those circles these days, unfortunately. But uh, those who know about poetry would know about Christian Wyman. He's translated other poets. Probably, mo- maybe most uh, prominently, he was the editor of Poetry Magazine, which again. Not exactly a magazine that's jumping (laughs) off the shelves, but for people who know about writing and poetry, you know, that is kind of the preeminent American magazine for poetry. And he's a relatively young man when he was made the editor in chief. So that's interesting. Uh, Another thing to know about Wyman, other than being an accomplished poet and an editor of that poetry magazine. So he's worked with, you know, probably most preeminent, you know, American poets and probably from other countries as well. He's also the survivor of a, or currently the survivor of a, of a very rare form of blood cancer. So this is a guy who's who's been through um, some incredible trials in his life, and he. This book, My Bright Abyss, is kind of a spiritual memoir. It's it's a little bit about his spiritual journey, and it's a lot about his kind of wrestling with the deepest questions. You know, of what do I believe? you know how can i articulate that so like i said with rilke you know there what the themes of that book were the themes of this book are are similar you know one is kind of just the nature of the spiritual life the second one and i'm not going to get into personal details of my own life but the second one speaks to me in very direct ways and he does a lot of reflecting on the value and worth of suffering and this in his case suffering under a form of cancer And uh, I'll just leave it there, but that has personal resonances for me. And then the uh, the third theme would be, you know, in the book is about poetry and creativity and kind of how one leads to another. So it doesn't hurt to have an interest in poetry. But again, this book, the reason it's on this list is because I found it to be one of the most profound books that I've ever read on those themes and on kind of spiritual life in general in my entire adult life. And it's the only book that I've read that I would put right on the shelf, right next to the, the most famous, you know, Christian memoirs or spiritual memoirs of the 20th century. And I'm talking about books like the seven story mountain surprised by joy That's by Thomas Merton. That's his spiritual memoir and a kind of conversion story surprised by joy, which is CS Lewis's uh, conversion story, mere Christianity, CS Lewis's famous book, orthodoxy by GK Chesterton, or maybe the work of Henry Nowen. This is the only book in kind of modern times that I would, I think could sit on the shelf next to those books. I think it has that kind of power. I've read all those other books that I just mentioned. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to be really hard. I, I'm not going to do it. It's going to be really hard for me to exactly describe why it's so powerful. Um, because, you, you know, it, it, there are two topics at, at play here. One is spiritual life and the nature of spirituality and, and that sort of thing. And the other is poetry. And a lot of people are really interested in those topics. And a lot of people find them hard to, to deal with. And this book is not easy fact, I gave it to you. Dude, you know, again, I'll bring up my dad. I, I gave him a copy. It was one of the last books. I think it was the last book that he read that was from me in his life. And um, because it dealt with themes that he was interested in. And I remember him telling me how much he appreciated it. But he said, this is someone with, as you know, four or five advanced degrees. He was a Jesuit for 12 years. He held a PhD in neurochemistry. He's a pretty smart guy. And I remember him telling me, how difficult he found the book to be, you know, and just in terms of not, not difficult to read, but the themes that he's dealing with. So I realize I'm really selling it here, but um, all I can, <laughs> all I can say is um, uh, Wyman is very, it's like you've been saying about Moriak and O'Connor and, and what we said about Rilke, he's very, very direct. And in this book, you know, the difference between this book and say Rilke's book is he's not looking to give advice to anybody. He's, that's not the purpose of my bright abyss. What he's trying to do is get at, you know, what, like a little bit what you were talking about before, what do I really believe? You know, what, and what does all this shit really amount to? And I use that word specifically because he's not afraid in the book to, you know, get in the mud with his language. He's very, sometimes he's very frank with himself. You can see, you can kind of hear in the prose anger coming out with the, the pain he's going through with his, physical illness. He, he got the cancer just as he was getting married. And then he had a young child and you know, his life was on the line and you can, you you know, he's really struggling with that. This book is full of that struggle. It's very Frank. It's very honest. And, but it gets into some really fascinating and deep water. Um, it's hard to find the words to describe it, but I found it to be, if you're at all interested in spiritual memoirs, spiritual life, uh, or even the value of, you know, what can I get through suffering in my life? Uh, how can I find value in it? I think this is a book that really plumbs some pretty profound depths in those areas. Uh, if, you're, if you're inclined to that kind of book, I would recommend it, but I know not everybody is. But for me, uh, it's one of the most stunning books I've read in, in the last, you know, 10 years. And I've gone back to it twice in six years, which tells, tells you mm-hmm. something. Um, and I think I'll go back to it again. It's the kind of book I'm going to study for a long time, and uh, I just found it tremendously powerful and really uh, like unlike any other modern spiritual memoir that I've ever read. So that's why it's on the list.
1: Well, what an interesting choice, John. Yeah, this is a this is interesting for a lot of a lot of reasons. Um, it's just really quick. I'll, I'll say, like, uh, you gave me a copy of that book. Also, I remember you giving it to our dad. He gave it to me. And this is one of those books that I, I read it and I immediately questioned my own aptitude. <laughs> this this is the kind of book that um, I'll just say because I'm not John, that John can consume and sometimes I will consume the same book and he'll get more out of it than I, than I do. And then I sort of immediately kind of question whether I have the bandwidth to keep up with John and his reading. Um, <laughs> but it, I found the book to be, but I got to read it. that book again because uh, the book is very powerful. I found it to be tough. I found it to be kind of tough to get my head around. I knew how you felt about it. But what's really interesting too is that you know, um, you know, when you first encountered this book and shared it with with me, it was before a lot of the experiences that you've had more recently that may connect you to some of the material, you know. And then and then you've gone back right. and re, and revisited it again. But, it, you know, you were able to, it spoke to you very much from the very beginning. But it's the kind of book that you can definitely go back to. I can see myself reading it again and um, and kind of coming at it from, you know, the angle I'm at where, you know, with future experiences and whatnot. But it's a very interesting choice and, and uh, a really good one. Now, I just wanted to say before I get to my last book, you and I talked beforehand. Do you want to just throw in one? Uh, title for honorable mention because we were having trouble getting our list down.
0: Yeah, I will. I mean, there, I had several that I could have put on this list. I'm not going to cover them all, but I do have to mention. Um, and again, it's linked to some of the, their are common themes in my choices, but I could not possibly talk about uh, nonfiction writing that kind of shaped me or made me who I am without bringing up uh, the vast amount of writings of uh, Carol Voitiwa, which is a, a name that may or not may or may not be familiar to everybody, but much more famously known as Pope John Paul II. Ooh, yeah. Um, and he wrote he wrote extensively about just about everything under the sun. Um, but I, I think his papacy, as we go along, you know, there were some problems obviously in the church that were festering underneath it. You know, he's I think um you know, his reputation as a manager of those crises may be lessening. And he also had just a, a great gift for dramatic gestures. And we'll see how that ages over time. But the real legacy of Pope John Paul II, at least in my opinion, was were, was his intellectualism and his, his, his vast uh, body of writing specifically about the human person and the dignity of human people. And, uh, you know... He wrote so many. This is a uh, while he was pope. He wrote letters to so many groups of people. Makes you wonder what he would be saying, maybe to people now during the during the uh, coronavirus, you know, right. pandemic. But this is a he wrote to married people. He wrote to priests. He wrote to children. He wrote to senior citizens. He wrote to artists. He wrote to teachers. He wrote to workers. He has all these letters that were specifically addressed to different, you know, segments of our culture. Um, And he wrote profoundly about what it means to be a human person. What is the nature of marriage about the sanctity of life, about the dignity and meaning of work. And uh, he wrote more personally for me. uh, He has a very moving letter about what it means to be a father and connecting it to, to uh, Joseph, the father of Jesus, who is a particular patron saint of mine. So his writing is a very deep well, but it's absolutely fundamental, and I still think about it all the time. I think it really shaped what I think about what's most important in life, and so that he's the one that I would cite.
1: Cool, yeah, yeah. I know that he was a big, um, a big force in the the shape of kind of your not too uh, presumptuous to say like intellectual thought or way of looking at the world. I know, I know. John Paul II was a uh, a tremendous uh, force in your life for that. And I've read a lot of his writings as well. And it is vast, you know, and it's not, it's not easy. Not for the timid. <laughs> um, no. All right. So we've got, we're at about 53 minutes and I can, that's, that's good. I can cover my book, uh, my last selection uh, fairly quickly. And then we can wrap up after that. Um, so my, my last selection goes in kind of a different direction. And I've got to say, I'm I'm such a you know our first episode was the fiction books that made us, and we talked about um, my you know personal interest in creative writing and writing fiction. I'm such a fiction guy that my last book you know kind of technically you could argue that it shouldn't even be on the nonfiction list, (laughs) and I'll I'll explain I'll explain (laughs) that in a second. And I also got to say about this book, I have to say to all of our listeners, I'm not I, I don't even really know why this book is so is so impactful to me. But I'm going to try to explain it anyway. <laughs> so uh, my last book is called Aikenfield with the subtitle A Portrait of an English Village. It was published in 1969. The person behind it, uh, the author, is named Ronald Blythe. And he was responsible for, I think, a novel and some short stories at the time. And Basically, what he did was he, I don't know how he became interested in this. I don't know much about him at all. He went to a specific region of England in the uh, Suffolk area of England. I believe it's to the north and on the east coast. Um, It's near the city of Ipswich. So if I have that geography wrong, I apologize. But I think it's northeastern England. And he became interested in the, the small villages there. So what he did is he went around and he uh, began speaking with and compiling an oral history of some of those villages. So he's just going to small English villages that had been in existence since like going back to the Roman time, and talking to the people that live in those villages about who they are, what they do, and the way they see the world. And the reason why I say it it technically may not qualify is because Aikenfield is the name of the village. That village does not exist. But the people um, whose voices we hear from in the book are real people that he talked to that live in other villages with similar, you know, similar features that are described in the book Aikenfield. So the experiences are real, but the village is not real. And all the book is is it's uh, what's called an oral history. So it, it goes between different people um, that live and work in these villages of, of all varieties and the book is mo- mainly composed of their voices recorded by ronald Blythe, just talking about their lives that's all it is um but it had and it, it, there's a couple things about it that really make it interesting first of all R- ronald Blythe himself writes some very um beautiful and essential but not very um not a lot of it, uh, sort of interconnecting prose pieces to sort of set up who he's talking to and what they do and why. And I'm actually going to read a little section of that very briefly coming up here soon. But he also organized the book in a very interesting manner. Uh, if you look at the, the, the contents of the book, it's kind of organized into these different sections. So one of them is called The Survivors, and it's talking with these farmers that lived through World War I. Another section is called God. There's another section called The Ringing Men in which he talks exclusively to people who are bell ringers, like the ringers of the bell in the old church in the village. Uh, The section called The Forge in which Bly talks with blacksmiths. Uh, One about the school where he talks with the teachers, the people that educate the little children. There's one about the military. There's one called The Orchard Men people that work in the orchard. There's a section called the young men where he talks to people who are men that were in the beginning of their the prime of their lives in the late 1960s. And it kind of goes from there. And at the end of the book, there's a section called not by bread alone. And it's a conversation with a poet who's lived his entire life in the village. And then there's an, I have to say this, there's an absolutely staggering final section, which I think is amazing and worth the whole price of the book. It's called "In the Hour of Death," and it's about a five or seven-page um, monologue, basically, in writing with the town grave digger, the guy that digs the graves. And he, his voice alone is so interesting, and he has so many amazing things to say about, uh, you know, just fundamental things like life and existence and faith and death. And just reading through it, it's just, it's just. And fascinating to hear his take on things. Now I'm just going to read really quickly Ronald Blythe writing to set up that last chapter in which he converses with the gravedigger. So this is not the gravedigger talking, but this is Ronald Blythe's prose. But it gives you an example of the kind of content that's in this book. So he's speaking about the gravedigger who's going to fill the last pages. And he says, his eloquence is enormous and violent and seems to be only indirectly aimed at God and man. He is arguing with the mindless, knife-bearing wind, which carries the ice of the sea to the vulnerable flesh and fields of the inhabited places. He is a religious man who is listening for God in a hurricane. The Bible itself has whirled past him, a mocking paper chase of discarded views. Almost every day he hears about the <laughs> resurrection of the body as he waits tactfully behind a tree, filling in spade covered with a sack. Most days he is left alone with the new dead. Uh, John, I got to say, I I, don't, I read this book. I found it for like two bucks in a used bookstore in New York when I was a graduate student. I bought it. Uh, I, I did have a connection to the material because my wife and I had Oh, I, I guess I'm messing up the timeline. couldn't have been one of those in graduate school, but I found it somewhere used in a book sales many years ago. Let's put it that way. I'm sorry for the error. My wife and I had gone in 2002 on a honeymoon to England and we drove around Western England and we spent several nights in bed and breakfast in these very small villages that were very old. So I got a sense of those places. And then when I found this book, I picked it up mm-hmm. for that reason and listening to the voices of the people that had lived there for generations and what they thought about things, I will just conclude by saying it has an immense power and it had like a a really strange, almost magical kind of mystery to me that makes the book very fascinating. And not many people know about it. So again, it's called Aikenfield, Portrait of an English Village. It is available in paperback and print. And it's by Ronald Blythe. And so that's my last book. So John, any comments on that before we wrap up?
0: Uh, Just a fascinating pick. And it's the one I know I noticed as you were talking, it's the one choice here that has not been read by both of us. So I guess I got my (laughs) homework, you know, like I'm, I dropped the ball. It's the only one that, that uh, we hadn't both read. I have not read that book. It is on my shelf and it's on my shelf because of your recommendation um, but I've yet to read it, but man, just from you describing it, you know, I, I want to drop everything I'm reading and pick that up. And it's a, it's just a very different choice on this list from some of the others that we've been talking about with some of those themes. So really glad you brought it up. It sounds absolutely fascinating with the Yorick like character at the end. And you know, <laughs> what a note to end on. Uh, that's awesome. I, I definitely, uh, my appetite is, uh is, peaked you know for that book if that makes any sense so well yeah but i think we can i think we can wrap up i i just want to say we we did forget we we usually in the beginning of the of the episode we'll say touch briefly on what we're reading now we forgot to do that so i don't know if you want to just to wrap up kind of touch on on that and then maybe you know talk a tiny bit about what we're planning on reading in the future How do you, how did you want to end things up and then and then we'll talk about what's next for the podcast. Yeah,
1: sure. So we're at an hour and two minutes. So I'm just going to briefly mention, and you're right. And I, uh, sorry about that mistake. I'm going to briefly mention what I'm reading now, which is Aikenfield. I was rereading it uh, for the first time. I'd only read it once before in oh, preparation nice. for this podcast. It's awesome nice. uh, to be reading it again. And then so what's next up for me, and we touched on it really brief, or not briefly, but you touched on it in the, last, in the inaugural podcast. And I'm going to do my third reading of uh, *Moby Dick* by Herman Melville, and I can't wait to dive into it. It's one of my all-time favorite books. So that's next for me. And wow. uh, what have you been at, and what are you going
0: through? So I'm I'm currently involved in a project of my own devising, just because uh, you know it's, we're all living under the quarantine. By the way, I uh, should have mentioned this at the outset, but you know our our thoughts and. And prayers and good luck to everybody who's who's dealing with the uh, coronavirus, especially those who are working on the front lines. We have relatives who are doing that, so you know, every it's a cliche, but everybody keeps saying we're all in this together, which we certainly are. So, but one of the ways to kind of deal with that is, I just the book nerd that I am, hence the reason for this show. You know, have decided to uh, sometimes I'll give myself challenges for my reading, and right now I'm deliberately reading. Books from all over the planet, kind of trying to get a—it's a little bit like a buffet, I, I imagine for myself, where there's, you know, prose all around the buffet uh, from people from all sorts of different cultures. So I want to—I'm the kind of reader at, at, that I want to go around and sample a little bit of everything. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. So I'm reading a book of short stories that comes from India by a guy named R.K. Narayan. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Narayan. Uh, he's a 20th century Indian writer. I did not realize that he was um, championed at, at, to the English speaking world by Graham green. He had a, he had a friendship with Graham green, the great English novelist that you and I've talked about many times. Um, so he was a real champion of his work, but uh, he's a prolific writer, has many, many books. I've never read him before, but I had a, a volume of short stories and he just really quickly, you know, this is a cliche too, but um. Just as William Faulkner kind of devised his own fictional county called uh, Yokna Patafa County or something like that. He can never, I never remember how to say that. But then he set many, many of his books and fictions in that sort of fictional county. Um, Ryan right. has done the same thing with a, vi- a village or a region called Malgudi, uh, which reflects his upbringing in southern India. It's kind of a, a conglomeration of small villages around in a mountainous area. So this the name of this book is called Malgudi Days, and it's a just a collection of very short character pieces, basically, of all kinds of characters uh, who live in this village area. And it's and it's so far it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, uh, I could I could go on and on. It's my first exposure to them. I'm re- it's a very rich book, and it kind of these very short little stories about particular people that form this beautiful larger mosaic of an entire community and culture. I'm really enjoying that. And uh, keeping up with that, uh, my next book, and I should have done more homework about this, um, but it's been on my shelf a while. It's a book. I don't know much about it, but I know it's from the Pakistan, Afghanistan region. It's called Basti. It's a novel. I can't remember the name of the author right now. I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce it anyway, but it has something to do with the, with the people who live in that region. And so I'm just diving into it, knowing Nothing, as you can hear clearly, but uh I'm just trying to read from different regions and cultures, so I'm looking forward to that. So that's what's next for me.
1: Oh, man. Awesome. Awesome, John. That's a great one. That's it. That's pretty wild. Okay. So that's going to do it for us. Lastly, I just want to quickly tease. We're going to have an episode three coming out uh in the near future. And for that episode, uh John and I have decided we are going to be tackling the funniest books we have ever, ever read. So we're going to be trying to, to make it a little light for our third episode and talk about the books that were really hilarious. So I'm really looking forward to that. Any last words? Tom? Yeah.
0: yeah I, I just want to comment on that just really quick and, and say that, you know, it's kind of a deliberate choice. I, I said it, we both said it in the beginning of this podcast. We really, we tend to go far and wide And that's, you know, both, you know, any way you want to say it in terms of history, periods from history, you know, uh, geography and also just genres and types of books. So our first couple episodes have been have gotten us into some deep water. I think it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. But uh, if if you're if you're hanging with this episode, you know, you got this far into this episode or maybe you've heard the first two. um, I just want it's not all going to be really deep water. I think we're going to do a lot of different things. You know, Jude and I enjoy a lot of, you know, we, we love horror fiction. We love science fiction. We love mysteries. You know, there's a lot of ground to cover here and we are going to kind of, you know, ping pong wildly uh, to different genres and different types of books and different subjects. And that's, that's very deliberate. So we're, I'm just saying we're aware these first two episodes have had some heavy themes And so we're kind of deliberately going in a different direction and we're going to continue to do that. We want to keep it spicy. We want to keep it, you know, uh, with a lot of variety and try to try to do something for everybody here. So and we also talked before recording this that, you know, it's funny, like with books, it's even though there are lots of books that are called funny or scary, it's not it's not easy to come up with a list of books that were truly scary or truly had you like laughing out loud. But there are some, and you know, like we may, ta- we're probably definitely going to tackle the uh, the scary books subject at some point. But um, we were talking about the challenge of like, what are the books that really made you laugh out loud and really stick out as just being hilarious? There maybe aren't as many as you think, but uh, I think it's an interesting challenge for us. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun and have a, a very different flavor than these first two episodes. So if you're inclined to keep listening, please do because you know, uh, this this vehicle is going to zig and zag in all kinds of different directions.
1: Right on. Yeah, nicely said, John. Yeah, I agree with that completely. So that's going to do it for us, folks. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, it's been really fun to go through the second episode and tune in for the third episode, which is coming soon, of the Book Exchange podcast. Take care. Thank you. And so long.